Hey everyone, thanks for listening to Know Who Drives Return. To listen to all of our podcasts, be sure to visit podcast.boardroomalpha.com and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any. For ongoing daily analysis, check out our channel at thestreet.com slash boardroomalpha and don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. And now, back to the episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Know Who Drives Return, the podcast brought to you by Boardroom Alpha. I'm David Drapkin, and today we're joined by Brent Handler, CEO and Web Neighbor CFO of travel company Inspirato. Inspirato is a luxury travel subscription company that's going public via Fayer Ventures Acquisition Corp. They struck a $1.1 billion deal that was announced in June. Brent, Webb, very excited to talk about your company and the deal. And thanks, thanks again for taking the time today. Thank you. Glad to be here. Great. So Brent, just to, to kick things off, can you, can you give us a quick overview of, of Inspirato and, and your business? Sure. Uh, thank you. Inspirato is a luxury subscription travel company. We have two primary products. One is called Club and one is called Pass. Club is a $600 per month subscription fee that gets you access to our portfolio of luxury homes and experiences around the world, as well as our service. Um, And Pass is a true subscription. It's essentially endless travel for $2,500 a month, and you pay no nightly rates, taxes, or fees associated with your travel. Um, Club, you, as I said, pay as you go. And the main kind of um, uh, component of the Inspirato inventory, kind of what makes us us, is this portfolio of residences, over 400 homes that we manage and control the same way a Four Seasons manages and controls a hotel. We control these assets through long-term lease. We control the service experience and we control the rates that we charge. And this allows us um, to have a lot more control and avoid the vacation roulette that often can happen with an Airbnb or internet broker rental. Uh, Things that get a lot harder, uh, the higher up the scale you go in terms of um, asset quality and nightly rate. And so these are properties that are exclusive to your network and subscribers, essentially. That's right. And they're in, you know, hundreds of destinations, uh, primarily where North Americans wish to travel. So everything from the Caribbean, Costa Rica, uh, Mexico to um, Europe, but also places, of course, like, you know, Aspen, Kiowa, South Carolina, etc. All, all the places that we all want to go every weekend. Um, and so is there also a hotel network that's, that's available to, to subscribers and how does that work? We have, so we work with hotels in two different ways. Um, we have over 500 hotels on our platform. Some hotels, we buy out their inventory and take risk 365 days a year in order to provide better value for our subscriber. And some we act similar to any other um, uh, online travel agent where we're uh, buying it for a discount and then selling it to our, uh, our subscribers. The majority of the value for our members though and our subscribers comes from where we go to a hotel and we might take 10 rooms 
buy out every single night, 365 days a year at a great discount, and then make that savings available um, to our subscribers. Uh, David, it's important to understand why hotels would do that. Mm -hmm. And it's because in the luxury segment, hotels don't run at the same occupancy as um, the kind of three and four star uh, segment. And so by selling to us um, at a discount, they're able to increase their revenue per available room. And in exchange, we have an opaque distribution channel. We don't tell anybody what the price is. So oftentimes we can buy a thousand dollar hotel room for $250, as long as we don't tell anybody that we actually are selling that room for $250. Right, and then it allows, I assume, the hotel to de-risk a little bit, um, guarantee them some revenue. And so your subscribers also, at least it sounds like in the, in the past product, they also would have no visibility into what a, a normal room would cost as to where they're staying, correct? Right. I mean, unless they went on the internet sort of and, and looked on their own, right? right. But um, PASS does provide, you know, great value in that capacity. So you're paying your $2,500 a month and you're getting much greater value than that um, typically by uh, what you're choosing to use with your subscription. And which is, uh, which is the bigger portion of your business? Is it the club or the PASS? Club is a larger portion of the business and PASS is a much faster growing portion of the business. Got it. Cool. And so I guess it, it begs me to the question and thanks for that background. It's really helpful. You know, you, you, you were founded looks like 10 years ago. Um, you've been around your real business with hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. Um, not, I would say at least the, the popular rhetoric and the, the typical, you know, SPAC target out there, you know, flying taxi pre-revenue VC type of company. What, what's, a, driven you to, to the public markets and, and why is now the right time, would you say, to, to, to transition from, from private to public? Uh, yeah, great question. Um, you know, obviously when the pandemic hit, people thought this was going to be something that affected travel companies, mm -hmm. <laughs> not, not, not that affected, uh, you know, the worldwide population. Right. So we were very quick to act, um, you know, back in, in um, March of 20. And it became fairly clear <clears throat> that we were onto something and we really needed to accelerate our growth because we launched PASS in the summer, July of 2019. And by March 1st, 2020, we already had $75 million of annual recurring revenue just in our PASS product. So a brand new product that we had just launched. So after the pandemic, when we were coming out of it, we really knew that we needed some uh, growth capital and that it was time to play offense. And we looked at what our alternatives would be, either doing a private round or um, going public. And once we decided going public was the right avenue, um, we decided to explore the SPAC route. And to your point, we're such a unusual SPAC candidate because the company was profitable um, back in um, really 17, 18, 19, and 20, mm -hmm. save for one of those years we were about break even the company was profitable. Um, so it's a little bit different than, like you said, the normal um, SPAC candidate, but it was a pretty fast way and a pretty efficient way to be able to access the public markets. We love our uh, partner at Thayer and, um, you know, we feel like this is uh, just the right next step for the company. Right, right. Um, totally agree there. And so what what specifically about Thayer? Was, were, were you... Was it a proprietary process where you, hey, we know we're going with there? Were you, 
recorded by, you know, the herd of SPACs out there uh, and sort of what, what does Thayer bring to the table and, and why were you, you know, attracted to, to go with them? Well, we definitely had, um, you know, <laughs> um, a lot of interest from, from SPACs. Um, we chose Thayer because of their deep expertise in hospitality. Um, Thayer Ventures is a um, travel-focused technology venture capital firm, and um, their connections, their board, their, um, you know, kind of industry um, knowledge was, you know, really an obvious fit for us, and it just made a lot of sense for us to partner with there. Um, and it became pretty apparent when we looked at all of the uh, different options that they would be the best one. And were, were they existing investors prior or, or they're new investors? No, we didn't know them. I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know them. And they're, they're, they're going to have a seat on, on the board of your company going forward. That's right. Chris Hemeter from Thayer Ventures will have a seat on our board. Um, and so you mentioned, uh, running a travel company, you launched a new product, you know, six months before COVID. Um, can you talk a little bit about maybe some COVID headwinds? Um, you know, obviously <laughs> travel shutting down in 20, A, um, how that affected you, but B, um, I've also seen you mention, you know, this work, this new work from anywhere um, sort of lifestyle. And has that been a, almost a, a positive on, on the business of renting homes anywhere, being able to work anywhere? So can you talk a little bit about, about that balance of, you know, maybe travel was down and, and it was probably a scary year to run a travel company, sort of how you emerged from that and, and what that looks like going forward. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Webb, why don't you take this one? You're better with the, better with the stats and numbers. <laughs> sure. Sure. We, of course, were significantly impacted by not only the initial shutdowns, but episodic shutdowns in various jurisdictions, even into this year. Um, so we, we do feel like broadly we've been coming out of that. I would say and some of this information was in our investor deck, which has been publicly posted with the SEC and on our website as well. We posted this year um, d during certain periods, we had the highest amount of travel ever, the highest occupancy in our portfolio ever, the most room nights booked in our portfolio ever. So a really bullish environment. And I think you're right to hit on some of that dynamic is people being liberated from the office, being liberated from school routines, but also, perhaps more importantly, the high quality safety and security of having a fully managed and staffed home. That's what we operate, our 385 residences as of June 30th, mm -hmm. um, in the manner that Brent described, like the Four Seasons, but without the common areas, the other things that do make some population sort of nervous about, about exposure. So we've been really well positioned to, to, to provide that mechanism for our valued subscribers to have the type of travel experience that, that they value from a top tier, best in class provider like us in the context of private homes. Are any of these stays, sorry, I probably should ask this earlier, are any of these stays long-term stays or is there a, a, a time limit on, on each visit? There's, there's not a limit. I would say most of our subscribers would do, as you would imagine, sort of long weekends on the short end and the longer end a couple weeks for a bigger trip to a more exotic locale sometimes. Right. Um, there, there certainly have been trips that would be longer than that, but I think it is a right down the middle of the fairway in terms of typical affluent traveler behaviors. Right, right. Um, thank you for that. 
Um, and as you think about growth, um, is, it, is it more organic and just, you know, the, the, the travel market growing naturally? Is it, do you have M&A plans, um, you know, future product launches? Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Uh, sure. You know, I think that when you, you know, we kind of look at growth in two basic categories. The first is inventory and um, supply. So we're, we're adding a lot more than just travel. Um, there's a lot more things you can do with the club, you know, more club in the club. So we recently launched um, uh, tickets for sporting events in um, Denver, Colorado, and in Los Angeles. And to great fanfare, we found out that our subscribers really wanted to be in a suite with other um, Inspirado members. And, and so that worked. And then in terms of just adding overall um, inventory, we launched what we call Inspirado Real Estate. And this is really where we uh, overtly market to high net worth um, families to purchase homes and lease them back to us. Um, and, uh, you know, we essentially have uh, curated and found hundreds of homes that fit the criteria of what we're looking for. And we're asking people, hey, would you like to buy this house if we gave you this type of return? Mm -hmm. And that's a big growing part of our business. Obviously, we can't hit our growth goals, um, $366 million in revenue next year, $222 million this year. To get to that 366, we have to add a lot of new inventory. So that's one avenue of growth. The other avenue of growth um, is our past product has tremendous opportunity for um, uh, feature enhancement. Mm -hmm. It's still very new. We didn't invest that much into it during the pandemic. So we're just now starting to invest more into the personalization, the customization. We have some big upgrades coming to the platform here um, over the next uh, several months. So making paths better and having more and better places for people to travel or experience the club are really the ways that we um, anticipate, um, you know, hitting these growth projections that we've put out there. Right, right. Um, and so put, putting an investor hat on, for a second, um, I believe the valuation was struck at at 1.1. Um, how should I think about that? Uh, you know, relative to, to some of your peers, or how you? Uh, Web, you want to take that one? Yeah. Sure, it, it, it's a great question and, and something that I know the Thayer team spent a lot of time on. You, know, you said it when we think about our peers. We are, as Brent said at the outset, a luxury subscription travel company. So we look at some of the other subscription category leaders that didn't exist 10 or 15 years ago. We often say look, there was no concept of connected fitness until Peloton showed up and created a subscription in-home product to access fitness. Um, when we look at those, those platforms, they trade between six and seven times on average next year's revenues the $1.1 billion valuation you described for Inspirato is three times next year's revenues. So mm -hmm. a meaningful discount to other subscription leaders. In addition to that, when we look at the peer group, we also think about some of the online travel names, Airbnb, Expedia, Booking, TripAdvisor, and, and even some of the traditional hospitality names, whether those be Hilton, Hyatt, Marriott, in the Intercontinental, et cetera. 
those companies trade at about four and a half times 2022 revenue. Again, at three times, we think we're priced at a meaningful discount that gives a lot of room for growth as the public markets recognize the value of our model, both the subscription and the stickiness, the inherent benefits of that revenue model and the luxury service that we provide on the accommodations front. Got it. Right. Are you able to speak to how that valuation lines up with where we were previously priced in your last private round? I mean, it's not, we don't give that number out. It's not super relevant because mm-hmm. we just hadn't raised capital in so long. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just a very different, um, very different business. It was, um, you know, many, many years ago before the company, you know, prior to when the company was um, raising outside capital. And and also, I think it's important, a couple of things I think I had said, but mm-hmm. the company really didn't have a large cash consumption burn. And in fact, had no burn for, you know, four or five years. And uh, one of the things that we learned through the pandemic about our model was our lease, um, our lease structure, which is inclusive of force majeure provisions, allowed us to be very flexible on the expense side. So if we weren't able to use properties, we were not having to pay for them. And then we were able to shed those costs, but keep our high margin subscription revenue very high because retention was high. So um, it allowed us on an adjusted EBITDA basis, as I mentioned, as a hospitality company to be actually profitable um, in the year of 2020, which was, uh, you know, obviously not the, um, you know, not, not the norm. So another part about our model that I think is, um, that is important for investors to understand is we're introducing subscription to travel currently doesn't exist. And it's just a much more resilient, um, predictable model uh, that just has, you know, far, far, far better uh, ability to withstand the storm of something like a pandemic. Right, right, right. Um, and uh, another thing that is, 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 is not necessarily the norm, um, well, who knows, but you know, so we have to ask it just because, um, you know, given, given the current environment in, in many of these de-SPAC transactions um, with high redemptions from, from certain SPACs trust value. Um, in, a, in a high redemption scenario, how do you think about um, the capital structure going forward um, and, you know, and having the necessary funds you'd want or need to, to, to grow the business according to your plans? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, Web might have a take on this as well, but we don't need any of the cash in the, uh, trust in order to be a growing public company. We have a fully funded um, pipe uh, announced at $100 million. Uh, we have substantial cash on the balance sheet. And as I mentioned, we don't really have a, a, a heavy burn or plan to have a heavy burn. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're very lucky in that regard that so many SPACs are completely dependent upon the cash in trust. Um, we're not. Of course, we'd like to have as many of the investors from Thayer um, convert. But if they don't, you're a public company, you have access to public capital, and we can, um, you know, we can sort of manage our capital structure um, however we wish because of the flexibility we have by having enough cash and not being a big cash burn. Right. Uh, you have anything to add to that, Webb? 
you hit on the high points, Brent. I mean, our, our current cash position for the dynamics that Brent described is really strong. You, you see that in our disclosures and filings. Um, and having the fully committed pipe of $100 million led by top, a top-tier anchor like Janice Henderson is really powerful and makes us feel really optimistic about this environment. Right. And uh, congrats on, uh, on on getting pipe financing. And what I, uh, I know is it was a, it was a tougher environment um, uh, in, in, in SPAC land over the summer. Um, and, and you mentioned Janice, are other, um, are other pipe investors, any of them previously investors in the company, or is it, is it a new group of, of individuals and institutions? We have a, a, a very good mix of, um, existing investors, myself included, Kleiner Perkins included, as well as, um, new, um, new institutional investors that came in. Um, with the pipe, you know, obviously our timing for raising a pipe was, um, you know, a little bit uh, challenging, Uh, but I think that, I think that speaks more to the quality of the company than anything that we were able to get it done and get it done with such tier one um, investors that, you know, really believe in our growth story. Great. And so I want to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, being a public company now and being in the public eye, um, quarterly earnings results, you know, hearing from, from the public market, I think unfairly, um, particularly even for companies that are, have gone through the SPAC process are kind of unfairly being hit in, in many ways, um, uh, given just if you look at, uh, at where some of them are trading. So how are you thinking about, uh, you know, educating market uh, on your story and, you know, managing life as a, as a public company um, where it just the scrutiny, the scrutiny would just be higher. Well, I think, you know, kind of a two-part answer here. I think the the first part of the answer is that, um, you know, you become a great company and you are a great company by delivering great results. And whether you're private or public, eventually the results will rule the day. And you have to have the right strategy and vision, but you you have to produce. You have to hit your numbers, whether those are profit numbers or whether those are growth numbers or subscriber numbers. Um, and obviously we're, um, you know, very committed to our plan and, and believe in, um, you know, believe in uh, the business model and, and what we've put forth. So I think it's like not really that different being public or private. You still have to be able to articulate a vision and then execute on that vision either way. In terms of being a public company, you know, there's a lot of, there's just a lot of um, belief that being a public company comes with all of these, you know, detriments and the public market scrutiny and all of the things that are, um, you know, that, that are associated with that uh, narrative. I've actually taken a different approach. I kind of like it to, to, to I mean, so far it's, caused us to have much greater rigor than we've ever had caused us to get web. I mean, it caused <laughs> us to, to, to upgrade in the CFO department. Web, um, you got a job out of it. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, you know, the, the people who were hiring the specificity of the um, numbers that we're reporting on, right. You know, in the end, I think it's all actually a net, a net positive. It does come obviously with uh, more work and a little bit more, uh, you know, I guess red tape. 
but I think the positives uh, far outweigh the negatives. And I think as a management team, um, we're really looking forward to it. We're a very interesting business as well. We don't fit in a neat little bucket of, you know, a marketplace business like Airbnb or a hospitality business management company like, um, uh, like Marriott. So being public allows us <coughs> the opportunity to really be kind of a category creator and get a lot of smart people following and, and really understanding our story. And what we think is going to be a massive category, by the way, subscription travel, we believe is going to be tens of billions of dollars of revenue, uh, you know, in, into the future. And we're just sort of the first one that's figured out how to, how to do it at any sort of scale. Right. Um, that's super interesting. And I, I really take to your point and, and, and agree, uh, you know, there's this perception of, oh, we're a public company. It's so scary. But it really comes down to what, what are you telling the market? Is it legitimate? Are you being credible? And are you executing on that and, and being transparent? So, um, you know, I, I totally take to those points. Um, so just, just to wrap up, and you, so you kind of brought it up, you're, you're, you're almost the first to do it. Um, you know, what are you, what are you thinking about in terms of, of competition or any new entrants? Or how are you thinking about um, uh, the, the competition landscape? We don't really think so much about direct competition. Obviously, there's, there's, you know, we, 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 we operate in a massive market. So Four Seasons is a competitor. Airbnb is a competitor. Marriott is a competitor. A local property manager is a competitor. But in terms of, um, you know, a subscription travel business focused on the luxury segment, we don't so much think about competition. I mean, if you think about our market share relative to our TAM, it's just like almost limitless in terms of our opportunity for growth. So this isn't a this isn't an this isn't an example of a a business or a category that is um, you know highly highly competitive today. Now in terms of comp set, uh, there are some interesting uh, companies that have either gone public or going public that you know we could call cousins, right? So Wheels Up, kind of a cousin. You know, that's a, they're a great partner of ours. They've got a subscription component to the business. They're luxury. Soho House, it's a membership structure. They've got some hospitality. It's a club. Think about that. They Casa, right? That's kind of in the broadly speaking, um, you know, va uh, vacation rental space, right? We could think about somebody like Sonder. Um, Sonder kind of manages and controls an experience. So we could think about them. So what's good is there's starting to be a pretty good stable of either public or recently becoming public companies that I would call more disruptive to traditional hospitality markets. And um, I think that's good. I think, you know, you, basically you've had the brands Marriott and then Airbnb made it out as public and there you go. Right. right. And now there's some different, more creative, um, I think uh, kind of higher growth potential new businesses going out and seeing um, what they can do in the public markets. And uh, we're very supportive of, uh, you know, our industry peer group of, um, you know, gaining some more attention with analysts and, you know, starting to get the conversation started. Right. Uh, what, what's your favorite travel destination? Huh, that's a good one. Um, my favorite is probably Cabo, but partly because I go there a lot and I've been going there um, for, you know, for, for quite some time, 
My favorite experience is what we call an inspirado only experience. We charter luxury, small luxury cruise ships, um, a Silver Sea luxury cruise ship with call it 300 uh, cabins. And uh, every year we'll do either a week in the Mediterranean or we'll do a week, uh, you know, in, um, uh, you know, maybe uh, a different part of the world. Uh, and, and those I've done with my family over time. And um, you're with only Inspirato members for a week and you're um, experiencing different, uh, you know, cultures. And those are really fun too. So those might actually be my favorite if I could only do one, but I think Cabo would be the, if I could do it all the time, Cabo would probably be that favorite. Those both sound uh, lovely to me. Um, so, so just to wrap, you know, any, any parting words as, as to, you know, last word as, you know, why, why should I, you know, buy a share today? Webb, you want to take that one first? <laughs> sure. I'd, I'd say hitting on a lot of the themes that we've discussed in this yep. session. Thank you, David the subscription travel model that Brent alluded to with a company that has a proven track record and has produced positive adjusted EBITDA even through the pandemic. Those are really unique attributes combined with our growth trajectory and the customer satisfaction that we deliver. We think it's an exciting time to get in on the ground floor of a new segment in a huge, almost it feels almost limitless sector of the travel and hospitality market. Yeah, and I just I just put an exclamation point on that and say that um, travel being a massive category has really underdelivered in innovation mm -hmm. for a very very long period of time, and you're kind of betting on this innovation engine of Inspirato that's kind of started in this luxury segment that has a couple of patents on this uh, subscription travel that um, subscription travel is going to grow up and be a really big deal and that we've got a really big head start. Mm -hmm. um, so that would be kind of my, uh, my answer to that. Great. Well, uh, Brent and Webb, uh, first off, I'm, I, I'm, I'm intrigued to go travel right now. Um, but, but second of all, th <laughs> thanks so much for, for taking the time to, to talk to us today and, and, and learn more about Inspirato. Um, super interesting company and, and a, a lot of, a lot of action in the space. Uh, we'll be, we'll be excited to, to watch your progress going forward. So thanks again for, for, for talking to us. You bet. Thank you so much. Thanks, David.